David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be answering your questions about George Orwell's George Orwell's George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> I didn't realize until we started doing these episodes how much trouble I had saying the name Orwell. George Orwell. You really, well, at least with George before it, you really got to enunciate. So yeah, we've got lots of questions here on the Facebook thread and via email that we're going to dig into. First though, Tim, on a scale of vacation to Aruba and dystopian nightmare, where is uh, where was the last week for you in wedding planning? <laughs> hmm, that's zero being dystopian nightmare 10 being a Reuben vacation I'd say a five <laughs> it's not okay. it's not a dystopian nightmare but Galen and I are ready to be married and ready to be done planning fair someone said something to me at church on Sunday that was really helpful this is your first group project together I was like, okay, that's a great way to think about it. Like, this is training for like running the business part of marriage. Mm. Yeah. So it's good. So what you do it. is you defer. Just let her do it all. Is that, that would be that would be failing in marriage, my first right? task. That'd be a failure in my first task. Heidi's Heidi's face just froze. I thought for a second after David said that. I thought for a second like her internet locked up. But it wasn't her internet locking up. Her face just froze, David, when you said, let her do everything. I'm just so curious about what your response was going to be to that. <laughs> I, this is a whole I new, you know, too. people are ever changing. People are ever changing. This is the, I've known Tim, I've known you for a long, long time, but this is a first for all your relationships yes. to see you in this role. So it's pretty exciting. So I'm curious. I'm just, I'm just studying. I'm just being studious. And, and what were you looking for in that response? How you're... As a counselor, as a counselor, what would have been kind of the worst answer I could have delivered? Well, the worst that's, it wasn't about that. It was about trying to kind of read the dynamic there, right? Because you are a curious mixture between like uber responsible and very chill and laid back. And so I'm curious, you know, I don't, I don't know Galen yet. I can't wait to get to know her. I'm really, really looking forward to that, but I don't know which side of you is necessary in a situation like your wedding planning based on, you know what I mean? So I was, yeah. 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 You're also a guy who's been like, you know, doing things your way for a while now. No doubt. So. No doubt. And Galen has been too. I mean, yeah, she's been running solo, has not needed anybody. What, what's the saying? Um, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. What's that? Old? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. I don't know if that's the saying, but we should go with that one. We, we are here to discuss more, however, than the dynamics of your wedding planning. Although I feel like we could get a good half hour into the episode just on that and have some, oh, yeah. have some fun, but we got to answer, we got to gotta answer these questions. Cause there is a bunch of them and hopefully, you know, maybe, maybe some of these questions will allow Tim to uh, pontificate on the experience of planning a wedding. Uh, you never know. So we'll see. Um, I want to start with this one. That's kind of want to dig right in, uh, because we do have a bunch and we'll talk some business at the end and let people know what, what all about, about all the other things that we're doing. This is from Rory Van Landingham and 
I like this question. So we know that in room 101 are, are many terrors. So he says, I've been pondering on what O'Brien would put in room 101 for me. So he says, I'm curious <laughs> what would be an our room 101s. So Tim, Heidi, this is for me too. What belongs in your room 101? We know that for Winston, it was rats. I still, mm. I still have questions about that choice from Orwell. Mm. We maybe could talk about that. Uh, but Tim, would any part of wedding planning fall under your room 101? No. Um, I think the thing that would go into my room 101 is in any form of genuine stomach nausea. I'd rather have, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, like I'd rather have a broken arm than be nauseated to the point where I think I'm going to throw up, but I can't throw up. That's this is fascinating. Rats in a cage for me. <laughs> I hate it. Huh, so, I did not know that. I'm learning all kinds yeah. of things about Tim. Mm. Mm. So you would, you would prefer, so that's your Indiana Jones being afraid of snakes. Yeah, that's right. Do you get like, do, where does uh, like, um, car sickness or seasickness does that uh, i've never had it that it doesn't okay. happen very often which i think is part of the reason why it's so terrible to me is because i have no i have very little practice dealing with it mm. it turns out you actually have like guts of steel but you just you don't know what's going to happen when they eventually crumble when they crumble on the occasions that they do i just i just like take me out of my misery <laughs> what is it for you heidi Spiders. I'm like Ron Weasley. Oh, really? Definitely really? spiders. Yeah. Like I, I get big the, and small. Yeah. I mean, just anything, but you know, fun fact about me is that if I, like you guys both know that I have insomnia and I've had insomnia for like 15 years. And, um, mm -hmm. I, the only time I can go to sleep on demand is if I'm motion sick. Like if I have really? like motion sickness, I can fall asleep like in a hot second. I just like lean against the side of the car, or plane or whatever, and just like fall asleep. I don't know. It's Not like, me, man. Uh, so that's, that's like my cure for insomnia. I'll just go right to sleep. I'm motion sick. David says, not him. This is different. No motion sickness. Like I get motion sickness at the drop of a hat. Mm. I can't ride in the car with anybody. Flying is terrible. I have, I always have to drive. Like I get motion sickness. On boat, and it doesn't matter what it is, I get motion sickness. Hmm. So I have the practice that Tim does not have. I don't like being uh -huh. Uh -huh. sick to my stomach such that I feel like I'm going to throw up. But usually, when you have motion sickness, you kind of like want to just throw up. Yeah. You know, like just get it done. Yeah. But that means I cannot fall asleep, which means I can't sleep when I'm traveling very well. Because huh. I pretty much either I'm driving or I have motion sickness. It's very sad. There's, there a, great, sad there's a great stories. story from one. From when I was working at, well, he asked about room 101. What do you think we were going to get? The beach? <laughs> yeah. A room in vacations? Yeah, right. <laughs> Mine would be hard to bottle up. And because for me, the, the like phobia thing that I have that bothers me the most is heights. So huh. it's, but it's um, one of those things where you know how like a lot of those phobias you can't control. Like you, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I, I don't like mentally feel scared of heights. I just, when I'm on like when I'm up high or I'm experiencing something like that, I get vertigo. You know, I get that feeling of being like, that's well, not actually, your happy place. Not. So I don't know how you'd bottle that up. Like you can't put that in a cage. Like you can rats or spiders or snakes. 
but Winston would have figured it out. I mean, um, I'm O'Brien, O'Brien would have figured, figured it, it out. out. Well, and I like the My, description. I didn't like it, but the description in the in the book is so powerful that of like this thing cannot be. Like this thing cannot be, it cannot be that there's a rat about to chew my face. It cannot be. And even if it is like, it creates <laughs> yeah. this like utter rejection of the thing so that you're willing to do anything to get away from it. It's just like, because that thing cannot be. So, yeah, hmm. I mean, are the funny answer is spiders and feeling like you're going to throw up or heights or whatever, but it's, there's something a little, probably a little more existential there that would um, produce that, just that utter rejection. But the funny answer is probably just spiders and standing at the top of a cliff. So. Yeah. My, my friend has a theory that everyone is either afraid of heights or afraid of cramped spaces, but it's very hmm. uncommon that people are terrified of both or neither. Yeah, that's Reactions. quite true. Because I'm not really afraid of heights, but I am yeah. very, very afraid of cramped spaces. Like you don't like oh, the cramped spaces, right? No, like no, going into no, the no, crawl no. space under your home. No, I would never do it. That thing cannot be. No, especially because there might be spiders. And there might be spiders down there. Yeah. yeah. In fact, one time oh. I realized it's not about 1984. There was one time that a workman came to our house. It's summer, all about 1984. And he had to go under my house to fix, uh, like a faucet or something that was outside the house. So he had to like crawl under and to work on it. And he got stuck there for over an hour with a no spider way. dangling in his face. I didn't know yeah, why that's I was not like, true. He did not have no, a spider dangling from his face. That's what he said. That's what he said. And I believe it. And I sometimes wake up at night thinking about it, like in a cold sweat. Oh he was gosh. down there. And I just like, after a while, I was like, are you okay, sir? And he, at that point, kind of like shimmied out and his face was like white as a sheet and he was covered in dust. And he's like, I got stuck down there on his back with his arms at his side under my house uh-uh. with a spider in his face. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. That's what he said. Unless he was lying, but he was down there for such a long time. I'm like, are, oh, are you okay? This has been close. Not okay. I know. This has been close rates. Yep. Existential nightmare. Poor man. Yeah, that doesn't sound great. Doesn't sound like a great. Even if you're not like claustrophobic, nobody wants that. I know. Like, Room 101 is stuck. under my house, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I live there. <sighs> All right. Let's move on to some more questions here. We have um, a good question here from Michelle. And she says, um, is dystopia specifically sci-fi? How did you classify those? There was a little bit of conversation this, about this on the, on the thread too. Um, Tim, how would you think about this? Do you, is it a subset? What, what do you think? A subset of sci-fi? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think it can be, because I don't think that this is really sci-fi. Maybe the, what was the name of the monitors that both like watched and listened to you and also broadcast? What were those called in 1984? Oh, um, the, the, the tele-whatevers? Tel- the telescreen? Telescreen, yeah. yeah. Like, I think a telescreen for the time this was written was a futuristic idea. But the rest of this book is not sci-fi. It's just kind of like, oh, I can imagine a scenario in which we have telescreens that watch and listen to you and project images and sound. But I think 1984 is not sci-fi, is it? Does Do you guys sci-fi, think this is the sci-fi? No, I've I guess it depends on how is. you define sci-fi. I, because I've always thought of like sci-fi as being, it's like speculative fiction that is primarily futuristic 
and involves advanced technology and science. Sometimes yeah. that then can be parallel universes, ET type stuff and time travel. So I don't know. I think this does have, it's speculative, which dystopian fiction also is, but maybe they're more like cousins than they are mm. brother and sister. They often go together. One. Yeah. They often go together. Um, because right. it's it has to be cast in the future. Right. And yeah. science fiction is always cast in the future. Right. Or in so, like a I mean, parallel universe. Some yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Dune is a parallel universe. We don't really know. I don't think we do. What universe Dune ex- or like when Dune is in relation to today? I don't know. I, I shouldn't have introduced Dune. Rem- I don't remember that. I don't remember yeah. the answer to that. I think they do mention the year. I think it's like they do, but it's like space years, like Star Trek, space year, twenty eight sixty one. You know, <laughs> exactly. and you're like, wait, Stardate. is that twenty eight sixty one? And yeah, according to our calendar or some sci fi calendar. And I think in Dune, it's a sci-fi calendar. Neither Gorgian okay. nor okay. Julian. <laughs> Dunian. 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 We should probably just switch to the Dunian calendar ourselves, honestly. We should. Um, hey, Tim. Yes. Which is more sinister to you? The prospect of a 1984 world as a reality or the prospect of a brave new world rea- world as a reality? This is 1984 is a reality. 100%. Go on. I think Brave New World, the problem is kind of like too much pleasure. It's a world that becomes meaningless because it's like just everything is about avoiding pain and embracing pleasure. And 1984 is the exact opposite. You know, it's like meaning. Well, I I won't say that... um, I think 1984 is a meaning-filled world, but physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all the gates are kind of locked to living any sort of substantial life. It just cannot be done. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't want to live in either one of them, but I 100% don't want to live in 1984. I do not love Big Brother. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, because there's so much intentional torture and suffering in 1984. It just seems like the the sheer human uh, catastrophe um, is like unthinkable. Like it cannot be, right? Room 101 cannot be. Um, But like it's like hell. Um, it is hell. It's a fictionalized version of totalitarianism. Hell, um, uh, brave new world would be a dehumanized life, but the, it would not have as much suffering in it. And I'm not comparing, I, I, as long as the question is just preference, I would say I would much rather be numbed out than suffer. I'm not saying one is less wicked than the other, (laughs) But in terms of what I would yeah. choose, I'd rather be high my whole life than tortured. So, yeah, I mean, you know, given given the choice, right? So, there's another question here uh, about 1984 from Coley, um, and she says, um, "Warning: This question is equal parts 1984 and Brave New World." She says that she agrees with me. 1984 was working really well as a novel until they found the book and then read so much of it. 
seems like uh, we lost momentum after that. Um, everything they lay out, they've already shown us. It felt like the book had so much potential and then dropped the ball. So then she says, conversely, Brave New World held my interest all the way until the end. And while I agree they're both very important books and good arguments that could be made for which one is more relevant, Brave New World seemed to carry itself as a story to the end of the book. But Tim says it's the worst, she, she points out. So then here's her question. Which book is better, especially since you all seem to conclude last episode that 1984 isn't great as a novel? How is Brave New World worse as a novel? And then she does say you must defend yourself, Tim. Gladly. <laughs> I think that Brave New World... Okay, I, I mean, I think 1984 has weaknesses. I think... Despite, I want to give a shout out to Christy Williams. She private messaged me on Facebook and she was like, hey, the Goldstein book is really compelling and here are the reasons why. And she gave substantial arguments that I feel like if I could just pull up the message, I could recite them really quickly. But they were, they were compelling. Um, I wasn't convinced on all of them. They were compelling reasons. I, I feel like the narrative 1984, I know where we're going. I know the obstacles that our heroes are facing. I know what I want. I think I don't get what I want at the end because that's the nature of the kind of like society that Winston and that Winston lives in, Winston and Julia live in. If, for me, Brave New World, my complaint about it is, oh, 80% just about I just find it poorly written. I have to go back and reread paragraphs over and over because I'm like, wait, who's talking here? Oh, okay, this person I think is talking. And wait, wait, what just happened? I mean, like the rudiments, I remember just the rudiments of the plot line being murky because of poor writing. I feel like there's hardly any character development. I think the character development in 1984 is strong. I think it's really strong. So my complaint with Brave New World, again, is not the inciting event, and it's not the world that it imagines. I think both of those are really profound and insightful. I think it's the writing. It's just, I think it's so poorly written. Hmm. I mean, we'll have to... We'd have to do Brave New World to really get into that much. Heidi, do you have thoughts on this? No, have read, I uh, have read recently? Brave New World, but I read it in high school. That's the last time I've read Brave New World. And I don't think I paid any attention at all to the writing. And I remember, I remember it, but I remember 1984 better, probably because I just literally just read it, but even before that. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I do not have comments you know, on that, okay. but I, I'm, I'm sure Tim's right. <laughs> Tim, Tim, I want to go back to, you said Christy Williams emailed you? Yeah. Because I want to clarify something. You said that she said that the, the Goldstein book is compelling. Yeah. I want to mention my complaint about that. I, I think like, or at least I thought we were agreeing on this, is not that in and of itself that is compelling. Like, I think it's compelling. It's full of compelling ideas. It even makes, you know, it's compelling in a lot, several ways. I think that as a piece of a novel, dramatically, it's not compelling. Yeah. Like I think yeah. it ruins, I think it derails the drama and pathos of the book uh, as a novel. Not that the ideas in it are not compelling, the philosophy, the political philosophy, all that. I, I, I just wanted to clarify that. There's a lot that's compelling in it. It's just like, does it need to, what is its role and and the impact, the effect of it being in here in this particular art form? 
that was my only complaint about it. If they, if Orwell had truncated the Goldstein passages, um, and it did not so greatly disrupt the narrative flow of 1984, would you have a problem with it? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I, I wasn't on the episode that you talked about this. That was when I was out of town, but I felt like the pro- my problem with it was I could see from a mile away that the party had written it. Like it totally mm-hmm. derailed any suspense in the novel, which yeah. I like, as I was reading, I'm like, it's so obvious, which to be honest, it kind of was obvious anyway, but that is like, it's so obvious. So even as a narrative device, even if the story, even if it doesn't need all the telling versus showing it, I just felt like it was, it gave the whole show away. Huh. And for me, what's not clear is the the role or impacts, I guess it it plays in his character development. That that's another that was the other part that I mean it's presenting all these ideas, but does he find it compelling? And like is the fact that he finds it compelling part of why he is able to be turned and flipped by O'Brien or and thus are we supposed to actually what are we supposed to agree with? What are we supposed to disagree with? You know, like the book doesn't really offer points of view that that kind of help relay that information. The truncated question is interesting because then it's not the same thing, you know? Yeah. I think it might have worked better if he hadn't made it just so long right in the middle of the book, like divided up into parts. Um, there's lots of great novels that have had books within books and they found ways to incorporate them into the, the flow of the novel. Yeah. Um, for the sake of conversation, though, we should... To talk about some other questions here. If you wrote 2084, says Aaron, what would be the dystopia that is awaiting us if we continue on the path we're on in 2022? What's your cautionary tale, Heidi? Uh, it's an ideological form of therapeutic control over the individual. It's it's convincing through ideology, the body of people that the state is their only hope and comfort and getting them to, to capitulate their free thought to the state because it's for their own good. And they'll feel better about themselves and about yeah. their lives. So I guess it's kind of an integration of the two dystopian visions. And, and I think also include a social credit system using this surveillance technology that we have now uh, in order to monitor uh, individuals, which that to me is very terrifying that there's, there's no way, which that's in 1984 too, um, mm-hmm. that, that there's no privacy, there's no way, no place to go. There's no, no way to hide any kind of resistance um, because of surveillance technology. And so that would definitely go into my dystopia but it would so it would be kind of an integration of the surveillance state with the therapeutic ideological mindset that a governing body knows what's best for us and we should therefore give up our rights and and exchange our freedom for the safety that they're going to provide um and then convincing the people that were bad like a morally bad in some way to resist and try to have any kind of individual humanity. Hmm. Tim, what would yours look like? 
I, it's, boy, it's hard to speculate. Um, That's the whole point. We're it's speculative yeah, fiction. Okay, so Come on, I'm man. thinking about what I think <laughs> is kind of like the sort of, um, the problem with the postmodern self isn't selfishness, which is a universal human constant, but it's weightlessness. It's a feeling that our lives and our decisions don't really matter mm. that much. And so I think that the big, mm. I think a big compelling problem that we're all facing is that we position ourselves in juxtaposition to our enemies rather than making positive statements about what we are for. And so yes, that is a right. really profound that's a really kind of scary place to be because what you in essence are saying is, what is your life about? It's an opposition to who I perceive to be the bad guys. And so we kind of become these kind of like inverse mirror selves, whatever ideology or whatever party or whatever group we consider to be like the most frightening enemies, I'm going to live my life in opposition to that. So all we do is just kind of, um, invoke opposition rather mm. than I am a self that has um, certain ideals and relationships that I consider good. And those are the things that I'm going to stand for and with. Instead, we kind of become negative selves. And so we, I think there's like this long running identity problem that's developed in the United States and that identity problem um, creates, I seeks to create identity by not following heroes, but by opposing the, perce the perceived bad guys. I think that's and really I don't know insightful. what direction so, that's exactly going to go, but that is, um, it's a, that's a concern. It's kind of like the notion the Athenians would, were, they, they would, someone was, I don't know who was saying this. I was trying to remember who it was. That's why I was stumbling. But the idea of like, I'm Athenian, not I'm any of the enemy of the Spartans. Yes. Right. Like those are two very different Absolutely. principles. Absolutely. One of them allows a civilization to grow and build. The other one, the warrior only has his eye on the particular moment. Right. Civilization yeah. cannot last for the person who says I'm in the enemy of the Spartans more than I am a citizen of, of Athens. Yeah. Right. So here, go ahead. Well, like the funeral oration of Pericles, which mm. is a statement of Athenian ideals, which is a, to me, like a must read for ancient history. Like if you want to know how unique classical Athens was, Pericles states it in this most compelling way. And of course he juxtaposes how, what the Athenians believe with what the Spartans believe, but it's more of a rhetorical, um, statement of relief. We are different than the Spartans in this way, but this is what we stand for. Yeah, I think that's a that's a real insight, David. And I think there's part of the reason that classical Athens and Greek culture flourished and is still looked back at today is because their ideals were profound. You didn't agree with every one of them, but oh my goodness, we're still looking back at them 2,400 years later. Mm. Sorry, Heidi. No, you're fine. I want to give an example of what would be in my dystopia that goes along with exactly what you're saying, Tim. I had a, a conversation recently within the last six months with a friend of mine that I've known since I was 10 years old. 
we've grown up together, college, young adulthood, like just, we've known each other pretty much our entire lives. And she is not a believer and I'm a Christian. And so we were talking about kind of, and, and she, she's, she has very different kind of political understanding than I do. And so we were having a conversation in which she was talking about outlawing homeschooling, which she doesn't believe in. Um, and she, and I, so I stopped her in the middle of her talk and said, or while she was talking and just asked her, so let me give you, let me ask you a question. I said, you've known me my whole life since I was 10. Um, I want to tell you something I teach my children. And I told her something that I don't even want to say in this podcast because it's so profoundly rejected in the public square, but is a common moral principle of the Christian faith. So I said, I actively teach my children this moral principle, X, Y, Z. And I have taught them that this is right. And that the other side is morally wrong. What do you think I should, what do you think should happen? And she said to me, to my face, I think that someone should take your children from you. Like I would take them and put them in a camp and reprogram them so that they believed the right thing. That would be in my dystopia. And that goes exactly along with what you said, Tim. And I think with what I said, or is what I was trying to say, like she would be trying to save them because Mm -hmm. like she would be trying to rescue them. She would have a therapeutic Mm -hmm. mindset about my children. And so in her like heartfelt, sincere desire to rescue them from my intolerant position, she would take them from me and put them in a camp run by the state so that they could believe the right things. That would be in my dystopia. And I don't think that's too far-fetched within the next couple of generations, and which, which is in every dystopia, right? That's what every tyranny goes for the kids first and for education first. Like every, we're, every tyranny is smart enough to know you got to educate the kids if you want to last. Um, it's a diabolical intelligence, but it's still a smart thing to do, Yeah. right? Tactically. So, yeah. 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 Um, and so I think that's the, that's the kind of thing that um, that would go in my dystopia that I think kind of goes along with what you're saying that like you define things, not by humanity, um, not by people's humanity, but by their ideology and what they believe, um, Mm. and try to control and manage that for their good. Hmm. Yeah. That's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. Well, when I first heard the question, my, my initial thought was kind of like, tongue in cheek, but the first thing that came to my head was in my dystopia, you just have the enlightenment. And then I, <laughs> then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> uh, uh, but that's a, you know, another conversation for another day. I was thinking about how uh, my mind immediately did go to a different place though, because I was thinking about like, what kind of story would I tell less? What would be the principles of power or like power hoarding or getting power. And I was thinking the kind of story that I find most compelling in, in these dystopian stories, it's more like a children of men story. The PD James novel that was also made into a movie. Do you guys know this one? Yeah. Good movie. Where like basically something has happened to put the survival of humanity on edge 
leading to the fallout of civilizations and a band of people trying to sort of preserve it and like preserve humanity. That's the kind of story that I find the most compelling. So that's where my mind kind of went. That's if I was to tell my own, it would be something like that and probably less of what like 1984 is, which just, I mean, just in terms of the formal structure of it. So um, great book, by the way, great book, great movie. Boy, I love that movie. I've um, never read the book. I've never read PD. Oh, you've never read the book? It, I mean, no. it's a lot different. I don't is think it? that when they adapt, I'm I'm pretty sure I heard that they never even read the book when they adapted it. I think they read the back cover and then adapted it. So I've heard some rumor about that. Um, and yet they're both both really good. Huh. <sighs> There's that one tracking shot. Oh, it's like, yeah, 10 minutes long. It's incredible. And they get blood on the lens of the camera and it yep. actually enhances the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And there's like a car. It's, it's in a car. It starts outside of a car. Then it's in a car. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I they, yeah. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, Cindy asks, she has a question about the proles. Why are they presented as a hope for escape from party control? Is it related to their connection to the material world? which can itself carry messages of history, tradition, memory, norms, etc. Also, the woman who is singing while hanging her laundry near the end of part two reminds me of an old fertility goddess, a very earthy image. Oh, that's is this intentional or related? Do, do either of you have anything on either of this? Like, first of all, why the proles? Like, why are the proles presented as hope for escape from party control? I took it, I'd read it very simply. Numbers. There's enough that if they wanted to overthrow... Big Brother, there's enough numbers that they could do it. I didn't. I didn't take it to be any sort of like, I don't know, like simple love of the land and of blue collar work or anything like that. I, I just took it as there's like a thousand to one proles to party members. What? And like that idea is sussed out by the party in the book. Uh, the the Goldstein book. Yeah. yeah. Like the party is the one that's writing all of that. And so that yeah. complicates how you think about it. That that case that the proles mm-hmm. matter too. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine they're thinking of anything besides numbers. Yeah. What did you think, Heidi? I agree. I think that's true. I think it was a, a very uh, clear reference to the Soviet Bolshevik takeover, which was like, you know, the harness the power of the worker, right? Um, and uh, the... The party, it is, the uh, the whole book is an indictment of all totalitarian regimes, including fascism and communism. And so, yeah, I, I took it as the numbers thing. I really like the connection with the fertility goddess, by the way. That's really good. That's solid. Uh, another question here. Heidi, Astrid asks, can you talk about Julia? In some ways, she seems more realistic, more honest than Winston. Is she more or less human than him? And why or why not? Does she exist as another foil to Winston? Or are we meant to have sympathy towards her? How do you read her? Um, I think that she is supposed to be very different. She's supposed to be kind of a degraded, fallen version of of femininity, right? Um, and he is kind of this degraded, fallen um Maybe fallen's the wrong word. Degraded is the right word, though. Someone is stunted, unable to develop their uh, their full femininity and their full masculinity. Um, and so her um, degradation is in the feminine realm, in her sexuality, in her uh, domesticity, um, and her... 
relationships with men and with other women, right? Um, so I think we're definitely not meant to necessarily like her, but I think we are meant to see her as a woman. Okay, this kind of like Eve. Mm. We're supposed to see her as feminine. That's why she's so profoundly different from Winston. And so she's, they're both just as degraded in the sense that they have been, their their primary characteristics of both their humanity and their gender have been um, so stunted and warped and distorted um, over the years. So what we see in her is this, she's the one who says, again, she's the one who draws the moral line of the story, which is, I will not betray Winston. Um, but we also learn if the party is to be believed that she's the first to cave and to betray him. Right. So there's just this really interesting kind of exploration of what it means to be a woman in this, in under the control of big brother. And I think we are supposed to see her as entirely feminine and what happens to a woman who is being oppressed like this from the vision of George Orwell, who is indeed a man. And so we don't necessarily have to take his word for it, but we are definitely supposed to see her as a feminine archetype whose femininity is crushed into the dust. Do you think he did well, Heidi? Um, I think in some ways he did well. And um, in other ways, she, she reads too much like an archetype and not enough like a person. Mm, mm. And I, and I don't so, think that's true for Winston. Like Winston actually has a personality and a humanity mm-hmm. to him that I think she lacks, which I think is a failure in the writing. And, but the argument is that pretty much we do see Julia through Winston's eyes. And so it could also be just another manifestation of how he is unable to connect to another human being and see her for who she is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I have to think about that. There's a question here from Tori that says, do you feel that the way Winston and Julia break down under the crafted sufferings rings true to life and human nature. I don't mean that suffering breaks people, that feels clear, but specifically room 101 and how their willingness to sacrifice each other in the face of suffering is what ruins their ability to have a relationship. Julia says something at their meeting about how after you do that, you can't feel the same way towards a person any longer. My initial thought was that a betrayal of that type would change my view of myself more than my view of the other person. And it seems like guilt or shame would dominate, not a loss of love or moving of total indifference about each other as they seem to do. So how do you view the result of Room 101? Tim, what's your take on this one first and then Heidi? So not, not necessarily that suffering breaks people, but, ha- but um, why does it emphasize so much that they view the other person differently? They've lost the love for the other person instead of felt differently about themselves through shame or guilt or whatever. I mean, I th- yeah, yeah, I think part of it is maybe the guilt or shame of betraying the other but I think also both of them were broken by the party for the party. So the thing that substantiated their whole relationship was that they were living in rejection to the party. And yeah, they, they got along well. Um, but really their relationship was built on being kind of like covert enemies of the state. So when they became friends of the state, what did they have left? 
they didn't have a, like any sort of like foundation for a relationship. I, I mean, I think that they liked each other, you know, but that was not their relationship was not the stuff of great romance. It was the stuff of being co-belligerents against a kind of a, just a totalitarian regime. That's how I read their relationship. And so absent their rejection of the state, then what do they have to bond over? Not much. Hmm. Heidi? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's the great tragedy of the novel. Um, The piece that is missing from this novel is the religious piece. Um, There's there's talk of belief in God, right? That when O'Brien asks, do you believe in God? Um, And Winston says, no. But there's there's no hint within the story that there might actually be a God. Um, and, And I think that that is reflected in this sense of their betrayal. Once they betray each other, the novel seems to suggest that that betrayal moves them beyond the pale, right? Beyond redemption. Uh, And that's the ultimate renunciation of their humanity and capitulation to Big Brother. And I'm, as I was reading it, and thinking about it afterwards and, you know, haunted by it, such a haunting um, moment that they truly are missing, right? Like the, or I don't know if it's Orwell or the, this, this idea that that's exactly what religion speaks into is the is the possibility for recovery after you've moved beyond the pale, after you've renounced all goodness, right? That that's what religion offers. There's always a way back. There's always a way, um, always a a way of grace, a way of mercy. Um, and the thing that, uh, that Winston was incapable of doing for Julia is the thing that Christ does for us. And, and that, that is the only kind of salvation that's possible for them at this point. Right. And that's, that's completely missing. The possibility of that is even missing from the novel. There's no, there's no aperture. There's no opening for the light to come into that darkness. Um, The novel doesn't even seem to take seriously the idea that there might actually be a religious answer or a God. Okay. Then let me, let me bring up this question here. Uh, that's uh, that's directly about this. This from, is from Jill. She emailed it. She had two questions and I'm just going to read the second one. Okay, so she begins with this. She says, the other thing the podcast conversations got me thinking about is how much um, one's own Christian cosmology affects how one might interpret this book. I'm not convinced that Orwell intended it to be, quote, hopeful. Let's see. She says, I didn't see Orwell saying anything like that in the conversation between O'Brien and Winston about believing in God. I read it more like, in the world of the story, God does not exist or is at least irrelevant. Uh, therefore, in a world of the story, a society like this is possible. One of you, she says, I think Heidi, said something about how she couldn't see that humanity could ever be so depraved as to allow something like this to happen. I immediately thought of Genesis 6, 5, which says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty evil. 
evil enough to desire power to dominate the world through the annihilation of the spirit of man through thought, control, and torture. The difference for Christians is that we know that God in his mercy preserved mankind through Noah and his family. The trajectory of, the trajectory of our cosmology is healing. So then she says, I'm not sure an atheist or unbeliever would read 1984 and see any shred of hope in it. So here's the question. Do we know Orwell's religious beliefs? Do we think he intended any of this to be hopeful at all? Or are we reading our own hope into the story because we personally always have hope if we're Christians? So I know Orwell is an atheist, but what do you think about the rest of that? Do we think that there is a complete lag of hope in this story from, from Orwell's perspective? Like, Tim, what's your read on that since you're not muted? <laughs> uh I think it's a warning. I think we talked about this during the last episode. This is a warning call about a dire situation that actually does exist. This, I mean, the Soviet Union, um, I don't think that they quite had the total control over the populace that it looks like Big Brother had over this populace. But boy, it's really, really close. Um, the book for me is Lenin's last, is it Lenin's last days by David Resnick? He was an embedded, he and his wife were embedded in Moscow during the fall of the Soviet Union. And man, that is not a place that you wanted to live for about, you know, 50 years. You did not want to live in that place. Um, so it's- Lenin's it's, tomb. Lenin's tomb. Thank you. Man, I always forget the Lenin's last tomb. the last days of of uh, the Soviet Empire. Lenin's tomb, the last days of the Soviet Empire. Won the Pulitzer Prize for I think historical journalism or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think looking for hope in this book might be a little bit misplaced because it might undermine the intention of the book. I mean, we, we talked about it ends so bleakly. What if he had yeah. been a little bit more hopeful. Well, if he's a little bit more hopeful, we might be a little bit less on guard. I think we would be less on guard. Agreed, if, you know, they tear down big brother or they at least like create a small cell of revolt. Hey, it can be done. We can take down big brother. Then it kind of like gets locked into yeah. in, in literary land. And I, I think that Orwell <laughs> had that possibility in front of him. And he was like, no, this has got to be terrifying. And thus it can't be which is why, it, Which is honestly like, to me, kind of one of the flaws of it is because it kind of then, he ultimately writes what feels like a piece of like early new journalism or something like that. You know, that when it f struggles as a novel, it seems to be like it would be pretty strong as if it was true, right? Yeah. No, I'm not quite, I don't follow you, David. Go ahead. Say more. Well, I just mean like, the places where it it's, has this, it seems to struggle as a novel. If it was just being a piece of journalism, like that's when it feels the most like a piece of journalism and is sort of like evidence of what good journalism looks like. So if it was a piece of, if it was a nonfiction book, we wouldn't complain about the problem, mm. the problems. Mm. And I think that's, it's connected with what you're saying there. Like he's trying to, he's trying, it, it, it doesn't get stuck in literary land, as you put it, which is kind of a negative way of putting putting things, putting it when we're talking about like narrative structure and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, some things belong in literary land because they're like how you tell stories and I don't, but that doesn't mean they don't have meaning in our world. I don't know. It's, yeah, I, it's complicated. I, 
I think you're right, but also like I would like to think about this more. Yeah. Like maybe argue with you about it in person. <laughs> sure. I got a wish we'll never do. We don't we don't ever argue in person about anything. So. <laughs> I, How do you want to add I, yeah, I do. One, I do think that I'm inserting my own hope into the novel. That that I think is true. Um two, however, and I was just having this conversation with Brandon LeBlanc. Why, if that is the case, if this is a hopeless novel, then this should be read in every totalitarian regime in the whole world. And they're, they always ban it. You can't read 1984. Wait, so- I, what I'm saying is that there is, there's still such an indictment, right? That oh. like, this would, should be a handbook for tyranny then. This should belong on every shelf in North Korea. They should be reading Big Brother. They should be reading 1984 and saying, this is your future, right? Well, the hope is just absence of it. Like the idea is like, it suggests the possibility that this is not the way, that there could be some other way. Yeah. And it creates an enemy. So like to create an enemy with the suggestion of the enemy not being there is not to, that's not hopeful. I don't, I wouldn't take, I don't, I wouldn't define that as hopeful, but I see what you're saying but I don't know that I would define that as hopeful. Yeah. And maybe that's my own, maybe, maybe then I'm just interpreting the, the cautionary tale ending as being still an indictment of the regime and, Mm. and therefore a hopeful, therefore hopeful message. Like if it, it's, it's not a despairing message. It's, but, but the, but that doesn't mean it's hopeful. So Maybe I'm yeah. using the word wrong, but it does, it seems to hate totalitarianism, even though it doesn't offer a solution for it. So. Well, uh, Tim, do you want to add anything to this? Mm-mm, no. Okay. I want to, I want to end with this because we're running out of time. Um, I want to end with this very hopeful note here. Jill sent this. Jill Corser. She she did. Yes. Jill Corser. She says, she says, I was working on making dinner in our kitchen last week and listening to the last episode with just you and Tim. This is what, this is when you and me were on Tim. Yeah. Tim was in the middle of one of his philosophical monologues is the context for what she's about to write here. I she's, prefer fact, soliloquy. Writes, Tim was in the middle of one of his philosophical monologues, ellipsis. <laughs> Her son Judah comes in. He's seven. I really like this, he says. Jill writes that she paused the podcast and then said, really? Do you understand anything of what he's saying? Judah. No, it just sounds so good. <laughs> Jill, huh, okay. Judah, can you turn it back on now? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Judah is my favorite. <laughs> he has always been my favorite. He always will be my favorite. <laughs> so shout out to Judah. You know, Judah, I just want to say, <laughs> most of the time, I feel the same way. I also don't understand what he's saying, but it does seem to sound good. Oh, man. That really makes me happy. All right. Any final thoughts from either of you? And then I want to talk about the next book that we're going to be doing here on the podcast, because we've got a little bit of an announcement to make on that. So, Tim, why don't I let you go first? What's your final thoughts on 1984 before we, before we talk about that? I like the assessment that we made last week, that this probably is not a great book as far as just like quality of writing, character development, plot intrigue, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think it remains a capital V, very capital I important book Mm. and definitely worthy of reading, 
especially when age appropriate. Mm. So where do you see that in Judah reading it? I think Judah probably has read it and probably really <laughs> understands it really well. Yeah. Given his insights. He probably should. Yeah. Seems like a smart guy. Yeah. All right, Heidi, final thoughts for you? I'm, I'm really glad we read it. It's led to some really interesting conversations. Uh, and so I'm, I can't say that I like this book, but like you all said, I think it's really important. And out of all of the dystopias, this is the one that gets the most references in our general culture. You know, we talk about the thought police and double think is brought up all the time. New speak, like a lot of these uh, big brothers watching you. So just the vivid imaginative uh, portrayal of the totalitarian regime. Orwell did, I, I mean, we've talked a lot about the weaknesses of the novel, but he did a masterful job creating the shell world of it. Um, so much so that, you know, we don't, we don't talk about like mind numbing substances as Soma the way, like that's from Brave New World, right? We talk about the thought police and double think, right? So Mm. there is just this lingering, um, residue from the novel within the culture that speaks, I think, to, uh, not only to the ideas within it, but also to the skill of the author in world building. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad we read it. It had been it had been a while, and it's you know it was good to to revisit it. You know, as you said, with like with these kind of conversations, you end up. I was going to say tearing it apart, but that's not really what I mean. You just end up talking about all the different elements and the things you don't like and the things you like, and sometimes it can it can seem like we're landing on a place that's more negative than I think we mean it to be in the course of conversation. Um. Okay. So, up next, a raisin in the sun. We're going to have an episode on A Raisin in the Sun. And then after that, we're going to dive into Tessa Durbelville's Karen Swallow Pryor is going to be our very special guest. Her new edition of Tess is out now, came out this week, I believe. And so she's going to come on, read that book with us for several weeks, you know, really dig into that. And uh, that's going to be a great time. During that time, Tim is going to be off getting married. And in the final, the final plans of his wedding and all the things that go with that. He's going to be a busy guy. So we're giving him a little vacay and he's going to have his honeymoon and all that. So he's going to have some time off before that though, Tim is going to be hosting our raising in the sun episode. What we decided to do was Tim's going to host that with a very special guest. Tim, you want to tell us a little bit about how you're going to do that and who that's going to be with. So our special guest is going to be Anika Prather. Uh, who, Dr. Anika Prather, who has spoken at the Searcy Conference. She's speaking again this year, very decorated academic um, and an African-American. And this is, a, this is a play, like a really, I mean, it's like just a brilliant play. And it's about the African-American experience in the middle part of the 20th century. I had been wanting to reach out to her for a while, and I did. And I was like, hey... I wanted to talk to you about other things. She's a real advocate of using drama in classrooms as kind of a teaching mode or a teaching device. And so I reached out to her because that's where I am also. And I told her about Raising the Sun, that we were doing it. And I said, any any interest in being part of it? Oh, 
it's my favorite play. And so I was like, okay, we just got to have her on the show. So she's going to be on the show. And I mentioned to her that we're probably going to be um, not just discussing the play as written, but also the Sidney Poitier movie, which I think was done in the early 60s, which is That's right. yeah. like an all-time classic. So I'm hoping that readers will not just read the play but also see the movie. And there's some substantial enough differences between the play and the movie that we can probably get into that also. So I'll do a better, fuller introduction of um, Dr. Prather when she's on the show. But for now, that's something to look forward to for next week. Yeah, that movie's 1961. It's got Ruby D in it. And yeah. Louis Gossett Ruby, Jr. Didn't Ruby D course, just die this year? Yeah, she, uh, no, no, no. It was a few years ago, I think. Okay. Okay. I think it was a few years ago, but she's a big deal. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a big deal. So, um, she was in do the right thing, uh, much later in her career, but so yeah, Dr. Prather is going to join Tim for that conversation. Um, I think Heidi and I both felt like Tim's the, Tim's the play guy. He's our drama guy. And then Dr. Prather is, we wanted to give her as much floor platform as we could. And so when we were talking about the scheduling and trying to figure all that out, it just, it made good sense to let Tim and Dr. Prather do this, uh, do this episode. So we are really excited that she's going to come on. I know I'll be listening. So um, it's not a real long play. You can read it pretty quickly. So catch the movie, read that, read that book. And then um, the two of them are going to, going to dig into it. If you want to post some questions, because uh, we're only going to do the one episode on it just because of length and all that. Um, uh, if you want to post some questions, I would say, can, Tim, can they post those on Facebook and tag you? Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. So, so post them on the Facebook group and then tag Tim and maybe he'll be able to bring up some of those, maybe at least help guide some of the conversation and see where, see where some of your questions are. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of an unusual, we're trying something new here basically. And it just made, you know, Tim's right. It makes so much sense to have Dr. Prather on and she can speak to her experience, but also her love of the, the book. And then, you know, Tim's Tim's the play guy, right? He's the drama guy. So I'm the drama guy on there. So yeah. Um, so yeah. And then after that, you know what that means though, guys? That means that this is the last episode with all three of us on it. Oh, for a while. June. Unless we do like a bonus episode or something. Right. Which may happen. We may, we may drag you back in, Tim. I've been saying I want to do a bonus episode for our sub for our subscribers, for our supporters on Pygmalion, the Shaw play, mm-hmm. which I love. Mm-hmm. So I may have to somehow like, you know come to your house, yeah, kidnap you, right. uh, bind your hands and feet and stick a microphone right. in front of you and, and force you to discuss <laughs> Pygmalion. Um, uh, which, you know, maybe it feels like that's what we do anyway, but maybe we'll do it for real. Um, so uh, anything that you want to tell people, since it's the one episode, anything you have to prepare in terms of reading this, this play, just anything else you want to add? We're talking about a Raisin in the Sun, not Pygmalion. Yeah, yeah not, not yeah. the kidnapped, the kidnapped him Pygmalion episode. I would avoid reading biographical materials about the author until after reading the play. I would almost make that a mandate, which, I mean, I think that kind of is, falls in line with how we do things at close reads. Um, yeah. yeah. But Lorraine Hansberry was a really interesting person. But I really think that kind of some biographical details, which surely will come up during the podcast, I think just read the play 
for how it appears, how it would appear on the stage. And we'll kind of backtrack and just talk about her biography a little bit on the show. And I wonder if it will, I wonder if it will change how people see the meaning of the play. I, I, I wonder if it will. And then once you do get to the point where you want to read more, there's a great new biography on Lorraine Hansberry that Lorraine Hansberry that came out this spring, actually. Mm. Um, so that's it's it's good. Okay, Heidi, anything you want to add before we go? Nothing. All right, you guys just did the Q and A episode for Henry the Fourth Part One, so that is up as of Wednesday the sixth. We also did get the Hamlet Q and A up, which was there were some questions about that. So those are both up now. By the time you get listen to this, uh, don't forget about. Close Reads HQ, Substack, closereads.substack.com, where you can support the show. And then uh, we've got the Daily Poem. Withy Wendell is in the, is uh, is going strong. Season three, episode two is up. Our guest this week is uh, Tim Probert, who wrote the Amazing Kids graphic novels called Lightfall, the second of which is out this month. So, you know, if you've got kids, tune into that. Lots of great stuff going on um, and plenty more to come. So with that... For the, for, the, for the last time in a while, we will have close reads. It's just the three of us won't be on the regularly scheduled show for a while. So for Tim White and Heidi McIntosh, just kidding. For <laughs> Heidi White and Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading. See you guys at my wedding. <laughs>